Hello there and welcome to Hungry. Hungry is the podcast for the next wave of challenger food and drink brands looking to pour gasoline all over their growth. Each week we'll interview successful founders, thought leaders, unpack their lessons and provide you with the toolkit to scale super fast. I am Dan Pope, I am your host and without further ado, let's get started. Hi there guys, thank you so much for listening as always, it means the absolute world to me. Before we jump into this episode, I need a really big, 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 big favour. I have pitched some massive guests, humongous guests, and unfortunately they've said no because my subscriber count isn't big enough. Please, please, please just hit the subscribe button on Apple or Spotify or follow. Ultimately it helps all of us bigger Guests equals better conversations, equals hopefully better insights for you, which means you can scale hopefully faster with a little less stress as well. So please hit that subscribe button and yeah, enjoy this episode. Hi there, guys. Uh, Just quick, quick, little ickle interruption. I am so, so, so gassed and thrilled to announce that Mackenzie Jones are extending their partnership with Hungry Beyond Thrilled. Who are Mackenzie Jones? Well, first and foremost, Billy is a great mate, known him for years. Second, they are, well, FMCG recruitment specialists. I know recruiter probably gives you the ick. Rest assured, they're not the neggy nose heads who will pester you on LinkedIn asking if you've had your breakfast yet. I personally think they're less recruiter, more growth partner. They are loved and adored and are trusted, trusted by brands uh, like Real Superfood, Lucky Saint, Hello Fresh, Fever Tree, Candy Kittens. But why? Why reach out to McKenzie Jones? Very, very simple. If you want to launch brand into retail and you need a head of sales, speak to Billy. If you want to in-house your marketing activities with the head of marketing, Rockstar, speak to Billy. Or if you want to, they, they really specialize in D2C. So if you need someone who's going to really kind of pour gasoline on your D2C channel, speak to Bill. Or if you just want a general knit and natter, chew the fat, have a chin wagathon, speak to Billy. He's a top bloke. Message him on LinkedIn or ask me for an intro via email and I will get that sorted. Thank you all. There's a horror story in food and drink that absolutely no one talks about. It surreptitiously scurries through the underbelly, causing throbbing headaches, wasted money, huge amounts of pain, dodgy barcodes. So many brands do the hard work. They create the product, name the brand, open the bank account, and then they cut bloody corners online and they order a dodgy barcode. Not sort your barcodes out is like scoring your own goal before you've even laced your boots and got on the pitch. It's a souffle of aggro. You know, you've got to relabel products, waste time. I've even had a pal who's, um, who lost a planet organic listing so they had the wrong barcodes. But thankfully, not all heroes wear capes. GS1 UK are the superhero and they are the solution. Barcodes from GS1 UK are globally recognised, uh, trusted and accepted by all retailers and marketplaces, giving you the confidence to sell your products anytime, any place, anywhere. But GS1 UK are so, so much more than that. Uh, they really are kind of a spring well of advice uh, for buccaneering brands 95% of their community are SMEs you can get free tickets to events um, and invites to talks big big picture opportunities who's like to plan organic boots and Sainsbury's and help you know with advice like exporting there's just so 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 much and look don't say don't treat you um, there's an oh so special offer through the podcast get 20% off your first year's membership with GS1 UK by using the code hungry20 at checkout thank you so much Hello there, people and listeners of the Hungry Podcast. Today, I am beyond thrilled to welcome James Bailey onto the podcast. Um, Our listeners have been waiting this probably for a very long time. Um, James is the current CEO of Waitrose, um, who is the number one premium uh, grocery retailer in the UK. Uh, James is responsible for 7 billion turnover 
uh, over 50,000 partners, over 300 stores, um, and 1 billion plus in e-commerce. Uh, Pre-Waitrose, James worked for Sainsbury's, where he was the grocery buying director, um, accountable for sales of uh, 16 billion or 60% of of Sainsbury's total turnover and was leading a team of around 150 people. Um, James also the Ned for several challenger brands, Oggs, Hun Wines, um, Well and Truly. Um, and pre all of that, James had a career in, well, at the NHS and, and uh, in, in finance. So look, I'm so excited and very grateful for you coming on today, James. I really appreciate it. No problem. Nice to be here, Dan. So... The word I want to start this conversation with is the word calm. Um, and I've done a lot of research and the kind of the general archetype of a, of a CEO is, and albeit this may be a little bit archaic, but the general archetype is kind of ostentatious, bit braggadocious, kind of Billy Big Bollocks, like, you know, climbing their way up to the top. Um, and I've seen some of that firsthand, but in, in two of the articles I've read, one said, James is less intense than most supermarket bosses I've met and seems genuinely quite relaxed. Another said, senior traders can often be intense, ostentatious characters. It's not necessarily a bad thing when you're managing vast revenues and driving your team onto uh, hit aggressive targets. Bailey, by contrast, exudes a sense of calm and control, which should stand him in good stead as he faces the greatest challenge of his career to date. Um, so you became the CEO, I think it was March 2020. So that you basically get thrown right into the, you know, into the, the hot defense. heat of a pandemic. Right. Yep. <laughs> exactly. You've got Brexit. Um, you've got just a whole myriad of different issues. And I really want to kind of, yeah, use the word calm to unlock the, the start of this conversation. So could you describe where this ability to remain calm came from and how your parents kind of nurtured and shaped that uh yeah i mean uh first of all like thanks for having me really appreciate it um i'll uh i'll do my best to throw as much interesting stuff at you, you and your listeners as i possibly can um and i'll try and stay calm as well that would be ironic if i lost my tempers wouldn't it um like i, I don't know <laughs> I, I think i've always uh i've never really been too uh i don't really get too carried away with stuff you know i love the things I love, I love, and I get excited about. I love being with my friends, my family. I, there's loads of stuff I enjoy, but I, um, I've kind of always had a, a, an attitude that there's much more important things going on, and certain things you do take seriously, and certain things you don't. And I, I've always, um, I kind of I, I naturally, relatively calm. Don't get too carried away. I don't know how much of that. I mean, my dad is pretty similar, uh, so it, maybe there's a bit of genetics in there. My, my upbringing was as vanilla as you can possibly imagine. Nothing nothing good, interesting or bad particularly happened. It was all just so, which probably helped. I don't know. Um, but no, it, it's that uh, that kind of attitude is kind of inbuilt. I didn't I didn't decide one, one day that I was uh, losing my temper too much and so I should calm down. And then from then on, everything was like a, a cool uh, uh, mill pond of, emotion it was just i'm just kind of wired this way um and I, i'm not a big fan probably because of that i'm not a big fan of huge egos generally and definitely not a work um i think i think you do need sometimes you do need in different businesses you need a bit of ego to drive things forward you need a bit of uh drive and vision and some of those things some of those things sometimes come with ego but certainly in bigger businesses like the ones i've worked in 
those those big egos kind of get in the way of common sense they kind of start to uh, distort room full of the, 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 the sort of the the mood and the vision and the quality of work being done in big rooms full of people um because more than often than not you know the, the ego takes over from the brain and you end up in some different places and more important as importantly maybe most people don't uh don't really enjoy working in a room full of big egos it can be quite a uh, a bruising experience. I don't think you get the best out of people in the long term if most of the things that are driving their performance are fear or intimidation or you know any of those negative things. I think in the end, you always get the most out of people by engaging them, both treating everyone as individuals and finding out what motivates them and trying to trying to create sort of an environment where they are happy and giving their best selves. I know it sounds a bit corny, but I, gen- I do genuinely mm. think eventually that's the that's the right medium long term uh, approach to working with people. So, don't know the the calmness is kind of innate. I can't turn it on and off. If I the, the one thing is if I do if I do lose it, then people do take notice because it's so unusual um, that everyone sort of rolls their chairs back to the corner of the room and says, "Oh, we better actually do something about that." So, if I do if I am going to go, it's it's on a very very rare occasion and it usually works. So, I keep it um, I keep it. Um, limited. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's just so my ba- brain's kind of bubbling with questions. Um, so, so, so the first thing you said is, you know, egos are kind of commonplace, and it can be quite a bruising experience uh, to work among that. And you know, I've seen it firsthand with some of the companies I've worked for, and just through kind of um, friends who work in this industry. You, the, the, the kind of the common or maybe old school story is that you, the biggest ego kind of r- rises to the top, if that makes sense. And it's it's not necessarily true. But how did you navigate your way to become the CEO of Waitrose when you were potentially surrounded by some big egos? Because that sounds really hard. <laughs> um, well, do you know what? Actually, I think it is becoming less and less common i think the the more common archetype archetype for leadership these days is a bit more like me which is uh i mean i'm not saying i'm all of these things but it's broadly more inclusive less egotistical more um authentic is a a very overused word but you know what i mean um Mm. and this that image of it being a bit like wolf of wall street where everyone's banging on the table and you know jumping over and and killing each other for the next sale i think that is i think I, i think in almost every job i've done there's been the odd example of that but most of it was 10 10 or 15 years ago now most of the leaders i've very rarely do you come across a leader these days who's survived or is continuing to survive in in some of our industries with that much ego overtly if you know what i mean sometimes it sometimes it's well hidden and stuff like that that's okay but I've, i've been lucky i haven't really i've run into a bunch of people with egos who kind of hit the ropes um Either because it wasn't, it didn't fit properly, or you know they got carried away, or it didn't, you know they they couldn't car- like pull it off. There's always the odd. Um, there's always a little bit of politics. There's always a little bit of manoeuvring and everything else. But it's not Game of Thrones, you know what I mean? It's not. You, know, you don't have to come in and, yeah, and out, yeah. outthink everyone politically every day to survive. What you should probably do is come in, say hello to your team, have a look at the numbers, and make sure we're doing what we need to do, and and, and you know build from there. And I think most most people I've worked with have ended up in that space. So, you know, being not being too egotistical didn't didn't hold me back. Um, it, and if you take all, if you take enough of the ego out of there, and what what matters is 
good people, good ideas, good execution. Um, and those and those things I prefer spending more time on. So there's an amazing amount of luck involved in most jobs you end up doing. So I'm going to put 90% mm. of me getting this job down to luck and 10% down to uh, doing a good enough job in all the jobs on the way into it. The... Um no, I think I think that's there's so much in that because I think a lot of our listeners um, may what, what you talked talked about there about having to navigate the politics and the egos and I, and I completely agree it's 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 redundant now to kind of go all guns blazing into these situations because as you say you'll fall against the ropes eventually but how do you specifically kind of get your point across or or say what you want to say whilst relinquishing the ego. Cause I'll, I'll throw my hands up. If I've got an idea, my ego kind of jumps, kicks off and I'm like, well, I think we should do this and bah, 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 bah. And, and then kind of, and then yep. it's, it's not, it's, it's a weakness. I sometimes don't let people talk. Um, so how do you do that? And I'm kind of asking this selfishly, James. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of different things, isn't there? I think, Finding ways of asking, of using qu good questions is really important. So, you know, if, some, if, if say, for example, Dan, you've charged in with a cracking idea or a really awful one, probably, uh, what, you know, what's the best way of, <laughs> of continuing that conversation? Is it, Dan, that's awful. Um, that's never going to work for the following reasons. Or is it, okay, Dan, well, you know, that's, that's really interesting. I love your energy. What's, so talk to me about what happens if this happens? What have you thought about X? Have you thought about Y? Who have you spoken to? You know, questions tend if if you've if you disagree with something or if you if you're not sure about something yet, there's always there's always good questions to open a conversation up. And but if you confront someone and completely disagree straight away, you mean you can if you want. But you mm. know, there's always a there's always a better conversation if you're just asking open ended questions. And I'm not I'm not sort of suggesting you kind of deliberately construct them or um or come in with a set of three questions you always ask everyone because it gets a little bit formulaic and, and again, you lose a bit of authenticity. But I think if you keep an open mind and, you know, you're you're coming from a good place, like you're genuinely interested in someone's opinion and their ideas, um, you know, starting by asking two or three good questions usually takes most of the, can take most of the sting out of a challenge that you're giving someone else's idea and, and it's not you're not saying it's a bad idea you're asking you know you're asking to develop the idea with them a little bit and i think that i think usually stuff like that helps create a better conversation than than can confrontation or, or or picking on someone's uh you know idea that they've come up with and they thought was the best thing in the world in front of other people that's uh that's not very constructive it's not and also the next idea they come up with might be an absolute game changer and you know, are they going to come up with it if, if what happens when they come up with an idea is they get shouted down or belittled in front of their colleagues or anything else like that? It's not going to work. So, you know, you've got to, you just got to be open-minded and constructive with people, I think. I hate to tell you this, but you're going to miss the boat on the 17th of February. Opportunities do not last forever. And on the 17th of February, an opportunity is going to sail off far, far, far into the distance. And you'll be sitting there thinking, why have I just stunted the growth of my business? Boemi, our beloved sponsor are helping build the fastest growing challenger food and drink brands. Look, if you're a small brand just starting out and need your first indie stockist, your first hundred stockist to wholesale, Boemi are the platform to categorically speed that up. But if you're a big brand wanting to get bigger, Boemi are also 
insane. They make field sales, marble smooth, silky slick. They're just epic. Ollie's, Ollie's been on this podcast twice, actually. They saw a 29% uplift in sales when using Bowie to check major malt listings availability. Insane. 29% uplift by downloading an app. Insane. Lucky Saint, my boy Aaron Duff, who's coming on this podcast in a couple of week, weeks, he uses it to manage the team of 30 people. And they've, Lucky Saint, have unlocked 500 draft listings by using Bowie Me. Look, you've got to get involved with this stuff. It's absolutely insane. Um, you can get 50% off your first three months. Yes, 50% off your first three months. But this offer ends on the 17th of February. How? When you're doing a demo, I'll put a link in the bio. When you're doing a demo with their sales team, their lovely sales team, use the code HUNGRY50 and it will categorically change your life. It's just the sickest platform. I use it all the time at Ireland. It's almost like if you go into it with statements, it's statements are really combative. I don't have to say that, combative. Yeah. Whereas, um, whereas questions are more exploratory and actually open up. That they, as you say, they take the sting out of it, but they actually open up possibilities to find even better ideas and solutions. And I think that's that's brilliant for our listeners because I think a lot of our listeners are challenger brands, and you know the founders often are super single minded. And I'm sure you'll know this with the brands you've worked with, super single minded. Like this is the way I want things done, and that's that's super actionable. Um, so I interviewed Ed Perry from. Um, from cook last yeah. two weeks ago good and guy. he's he's a really really good guy and and he was basically saying that he 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 struggles to stay calm it's almost like the kind of the complete complete opposite yeah. to yourself um, yeah. and one one of the words he he said to navigate all the kind of the the seep um the inflation, the cost price increases going through uh, cost living crisis he said he needs to stay calm is that's what he needs to personally do um I would love to know what has been the hardest them. day in your career when you didn't stay calm initially <laughs> and, yeah. it, and it did it did emotionally sting. And then how did you navigate out of that? Um, yeah, I mean, good question. I, I mean, I often refer back to a, uh, something that happened when I was at Sainsbury's um, and it's a good answer to, it's an okay answer to this question. It's a good answer as well to what happens when you get a setback in your career a little bit. Um, and I, you know, I, I won't go into all the details, but it was basically my, I'd been promoted to a director. I was relatively young, not the youngest, but quite young. And I felt a little bit of that. And it was my first chance to talk to my whole team. There's about 200 people in the room. Um, and in Sainsbury's, there's a sort of an underground auditorium. So it's a bit like being on the, on the stage of the national theater sometimes, but I'd had a, I'd had a think about, I'd had a chance to think about what I wanted to say to everyone. And the, and the thing that was the most important to me all the way through, all the way through my career, actually, the thing that has most interested me most often is the culture at work and how we work and how you how you um, improve engagement, how you improve um, autonomy and happiness at work, and the impact that can have on you know the working environment and the results. So, I kind of had a thought about I think about that, and I thought right. So now I'm now I'm in charge. Probably a mistake at the time, but now I'm in charge of this team. What you know? How do I want to? How do I want to position that? Like, how do I want us to work? I think that's the first most important thing to talk to everyone about. So I stood up and I sort of said, "Look, I think it's really important that that we are that we that we're all engaged and we're all happy in what we're doing and we know what needs doing. And you know, it's a nice, open, authentic room and we can all talk to each other about whether we think these are good or bad ideas. And I, and I think being able, you know, I think having a high degree of trust is important and being flexible and things like that. 
And I kind of talked about the way I wanted us to work, being a bit more flexible. And I'd said, um, you know, I personally won't be checking where everyone is. That's ridiculous. You know, I trust you guys are doing a good job. It's, it's going to be about the work we do, not where we do the work. And, you know, all, all things that sound a bit um, uh, old-fashioned now, but they were uh, like, this is about maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. So at the time, it sounded revolutionary to my ears. Anyway, I thought it was really good. Um and I said at the time as well, I want a good work-life balance for everyone because I think it's really important. So I said that we won't like the the, the only um, the only sort of rule I want to try and work together on is that we won't send emails between uh, six in the six in the evening and eight o'clock in the morning, right? So that when you go home, and at this point, some people you know you had this is how old it is. You had like a BlackBerry or something, or you could still get work emails on your phone or something. And I wanted people to be able to go home and not be constantly looking at their phone right so it was either buzzing or they you know they were they weren't switching off and they're coming in exhausted the next day so i said right no emails between eight in the morning and six at night and everyone left and it looked and it and it felt felt quite positive and i thought right this is great we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna push on here and, and work together as a team and do things differently and this was in the morning and around about two o'clock in the afternoon, I got a phone call from one of the directors, proper directors, not just like mini directors of the business and said, uh, James, I've, you know, someone's just called me and said that you told your team that they could all work flexibly and that they wouldn't be sending emails after a certain time and stuff. And I said, yeah, I did say that. It's really good, isn't it? And they said, no, that's awful. That's, that's not the company policy. You can't say that to one team and have your team working one way and everyone else working a different way. Um, and, you know, it's gone all the way to the top and the people at the top at the time weren't particularly um, open-minded, should we say, about flexible working. And the idea that, you know, you, you, you would um, trust people to work, you know, on, on what they're doing and in the way they wanted to do it. And so I, I so I brought broadly in the space of about eight hours, I got a phone call from that person. And then I said, and then they said, well, so the, the boss is going to call you. Um, and uh, he wants to understand exactly what you said. And based on what what exactly you said, you might get fired because you completely um, like undermined company working policy, and you can't just go out and say these things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is this is the Wednesday of my first week as a director, and I think and I and I was sitting How there with you, a single, sorry, just oh, I would have been How... uh, mid thirties, late thirties, something like that. Okay, okay, yeah. So yeah, okay, just to get some context, yeah. So you're yeah. still pretty young in the grand scheme of things, yeah. Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, not compared to a lot of people probably listening <laughs> to this, but it felt young at the time. Um, but yeah, so I was three days in and uh, I was getting a phone call from the basically the boss of Sainsbury's to, to check what I'd said. And if, and if if I'd said the wrong thing, I was I was going to get fired. And I, I was completely blindsided because I was like, I'm pretty sure I haven't said anything too bad. I, I was just saying the things I, I believe in and I want the team to get on with. Um, and anyway, the, you know, so I was absolutely mildly petrified um but uh there's a there was a part of me that said well, i've not done anything wrong so i don't know i'm i'm, I'm just gonna say what i said and if, if that was the wrong thing i'm gonna have to take it on the chin and as it happened it was okay i kind of got a slap on the wrist and a telling off and had to sort of um apologize to a few people but but it I, about a week later after i'd finished panicking slightly um i i kind of realized that actually what I'd done was assert the things I did believe in and that that was pretty important to me. And I didn't think I'd said anything wrong and I did think those things were the right things to do. And lots of people had come up afterwards and said, 
oh, I hear you're in trouble for that. I think it was worth it because someone needs to say those things where, you know, we need to change the way we work. And I think, I think at one, on the one hand, I learned you've got to be a lot, you've got to be conscious of the, of the impact you have in certain jobs and the fact that you're not just talking to a room of 200 people underground in a head office. You, sometimes there's a lot more, it has a lot more impact than that and you need to be a bit more wary of that. But I also learned not, I, I learned if you believe, I, I think, if I believe in something, if I think it's the right thing to do, I don't mind who hears it. Um, and so, so you know, the conviction, you, that conviction that you that you believe certain things are the right way to do things and the right things for the way people work, it could be anything. It could be different convictions. But I, it was the first serious time I'd nearly got fired. Um, and it was, for, it was for saying something I really believed in. And I, I kind of, I know it sounds corny, but I kind of thought, well, if you're going to get fired for something, it might as well be something like that. Um, so m- m- I don't know what I was supposed to learn from that situation, but what I did take away was you might as well just go for the things you believe in because if they, if they don't fit in the environment you're in, you're better off learning that straight away. And there's definitely no point in hiding. Hi- it, I, could have, I could have turned around and said, oh, I don't believe in those things. I'd change my mind. We're going to do it differently, et cetera. But I wouldn't have believed it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of, it was an unusual way to learn it, but I kind of, I think I learned in that moment and through that process that you might as well, there's one of my favorite phrases apparently comes from a Mexican revolutionary, um, uh, called Emiliano Zapata. And I think, let's say it was him who said it, basically said it's better to die on your feet than live on your knees. And I think when he was saying it, it probably meant a lot more. But when I hear it, I think, well, you might as well stick to your beliefs and say the things you believe, because otherwise you're going to look back and think, I never really said what I meant to say. And I never, I, knew I, yeah, I never found out why the people would or wouldn't, how they'd react to it, or whether it was important, or whether people agreed or not. So I kind of, I kind of accidentally learned that lesson by nearly getting fired from the biggest job I've ever done at the time. I mean, it's, it's, what you've said there, it's better to die on, die on your feet than live on your knees. And I think, I think that's just absolutely delicious. And I think having, having your own personal principles to make decisions from is, is really strong and your own values. And I think there's so much in that for our listeners. And I also think it's true of questions. Um, I, I think, I think there's this, it kind of goes back to the ego thing or the insecurity we were talking about earlier about asking questions. And sometimes in settings you can, you can be, and I've had it before, I'm too scared to ask a question. Um, whereas, whereas now the more I've, as I've just got a little bit, a little bit older, I, I don't think any question's a um, bad question. As someone I was listening to on a podcast, like every question's a good question, just ask the question. And it's yep. actually about building the muscle to ask the question. Um, uh, so, so, what did it feel like when the boss called you? Like, because <laughs> as I said, I'm, like, what did that, I'm trying to see if you've ever been rattled or were you, where were you when that phone call took place? Um, I et was, yeah, I was at home and I'd, I'd gone home and I told, uh, Emma, my wife, and, um, and she'd kind of looked at me like I was an idiot. How could I possibly be getting fired after three days? Um, and I, and, uh, you know, I was a little bit rabbit in the headlights. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly, this was before I'd had time to sort of process it a little bit. So it was all happening a little bit quickly. And so I was just sat at home waiting for this phone call and, and, um, and trying, 
to decide whether I try, whether I'm how honest I am about what it was I'd said or not, or whether I try and second guess what um, that person might want to hear or not hear. And again, you know, again, trying to second guess people and understand what they're hearing or not is not a good idea because you end up tying yourselves in knots. So, yeah, I mean, I had to, I had to just be completely honest and say what I had said and explain why I'd said it and trust that it was kind of it was enough not to get me fired so yeah i was i was um uh without using bad words i was slightly uh nervous for quite a while before that phone call arrived and afterwards um but then uh he so this was um justin king who used to run sainsbury's and uh, i hadn't had a lot of interaction with him before that a little bit i kind of knew a little bit uh, and he's he's a he's a good guy but he, he's ta- he sort of takes no prisoners either. So uh, I had kind of no doubt that if he disagreed and didn't think it was a good idea, he would have he would probably have said so. Um, but he texted me soon after and said, "Look, don't don't worry about it. You were, you know, you were sticking up for something you thought you believed. You might have slightly, you've probably crossed the rails. You might need to apologise to a few people, but don't worry about it. Get on with it." Sort of thing. So in uh, in the end, he was very, he was supportive. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. I'm not going to pretend I wasn't slightly um, nervous, should we say, beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> the and and I think it reminds me of of a of a great quote I love, which is you you are the sum of the of the uncomfortable conversations you have. I think a lot about of life is having really uncomfortable conversations, whether that's you know potentially your boss calling you to say right if you you get you're getting the can yeah. if, this, if, you, if this conversation doesn't go well from our end as, as brands it could be having hard conversations with the retailers that you've, you've got to have these conversations to progress forward what did you like did you were you just like hold my hands up i'm honest this is what i said like because i think that it's not what you say it's how you say it often especially with uncomfortable conversations so kind of how did you deliver the the news because you'd kind of gone against sainsbury's policy <laughs> Yeah, again, I uh, like I said, I could have probably tried to spin it or or uh, try and, as I say, try and second guess what I thought he wanted to hear or they wanted to hear or anything else. But because I didn't know what particularly that might be, I, I kind of didn't have that option. And and because I, you know, I was convinced I hadn't said anything wrong, and I thought it was the right thing to do. And the other things, I had enough conviction to take me over that line, and. And like I said, broad, like in my experience, I probably when I was a bit younger, I probably did try and second guess things and try and uh, uh, adapt to what I thought people would prefer to hear rather than really what was more authentic or anything else. And and again, you end up tripping over yourself afterwards. You you, you kind of um, it's there's a slow winding path to not being able to bring yourself to work by following that route. So I don't think I particularly thought about it too much. I just kind of do I still do I still believe what I said was the right thing and I and I positioned it that way and I kind of I don't I think I kind of stuck up for myself a little bit but I was uh I was smart enough not to assert that too much if you like so I was um uh I'm pretty sure I said what everything I'd said and why I'd said it and tried to make myself sound as open-minded about as possible about about the things I should learn from this scenario rather than getting fired um would probably be the best summary of it no, but I think it goes back to this, this open mindedness and open questions. I think that's real, uh, kind of, there's real value in that for, for our listeners. Um, where I want to go now. So, so Waitrose have got arguably 
um, the one, one of the best cultures and you know I, I we did a uh, we came in today uh, a, a demo with you guys at one of the like partner dining rooms and all the every single sort of partner and staff member was super happy they talked about this kind of waitrose stone that everyone seems to put on a waitrose stone the first year they work at waitress because the food's so good sounds familiar. I mean I was yeah. like yeah, I, was, I mean, I'm pretty sure I put on half a stone in, in, in the afternoon. I was just scoffing my face with all manner of things. But, but the, the culture is really strong. And what I, what I saw and what I was fascinated by is, you know, the people who've got the badges that say, I've, I've been here for like 25 years. It's very revered that, and how long people have been at the company. Um, but that is kind of unique, especially in today's world where most people kind of hop between jobs every two to three, four years. Um, I really want to dig into, dig into this culture. Um, so the, so the first question is, and I think the kind of the way to do this is to almost look at your in, interview process to become the CEO, because the, the way that the questions they're asking for the, for the man at the, at the helm are probably going to be the best lens to look through this. So what was like, what was the interview process? Um, if you're okay to disclose, like, uh, f- going from Sainsbury's to Waitrose? Yeah, well, I mean, this is going to be bitterly disappointing, but mildly interesting for people because the, there wasn't much of a process. Um, so, I mean, I'd left Sainsbury's the summer before and had an absolutely brilliant time for about eight months, um, you know, meeting loads of people. Quite a lot of, um, you know, I kind of indulged in a bit more of my passion on the food startups, got involved with um, uh, Well and Truly, got involved with some of the other guys like Hun. Um, met lots of PE companies, talked about lots of interesting things. I was really enjoying it um, uh, and slowly running out of money, which is always a problem. Um, and and broadly, I was kind of answering lots of phone calls and saying, and lots of people were saying, can you come and talk to us about X, Y, and Z? And I had nothing to lose, so I was just going and having good conversations with people, which is a brilliant sort of frame of mind to be in. It's very um, uh, liberating. And I got a phone call and said, and they said, basically, uh, so Sharon, who's my boss, Sharon White, a uh, pretty remarkable um, person, uh, would she's she's new to the job of chairman of the John Lewis Partnership, and she would like to meet some people from retail and just sort of begin to learn about the ups and downs, what are the ins and outs, what should she be watching out for, things like that. And would you be prepared to go and have a cup of tea with her? So I said, yeah, of course I would. That sounds fascinating. So I I, um, uh, I went into London and met Sharon in a really nice little uh, tea room and we sat in the corner and Sharon is, uh, if anyone gets a chance, Sharon's an amazing person to me. She's super warm and generous and really personable. And, you know, I, I just felt at ease really quickly and she kind of explained that she just started and was really just keen to learn and we talked a little bit about how grocery worked and all the different ins and outs and things like that. I just had a really lovely conversation for about an hour and nothing, nothing particularly... She asked a little bit about what I thought about the Waitrose brand and the business. And and she also asked about, she'd seen on my CV that I had um, uh, one of the businesses I'd worked with. So if you go back uh, seven or eight years, I'd we'd set up a program at Sainsbury's uh, as a sort of a, a forerunner to what we did on Future Brands, where we did Dragon's Dens and we met loads of um, food entrepreneurs and they came and pitched and you know I still I still talk to some of those guys now like Harriet from Man and Marsh um, uh, and uh, Jane from 
X of Kitty Yum and things like that. So we we met loads of really fascinating people. Um, but one of the one of the things I did was take on a uh, an advisory role at a social enterprise, um, which has which uh, has morphed into a really interesting uh, uh, business that works with homeless people. It's a charity as well. So a um, fascinating setup. But Sharon had seen this on my CV and said, "Well, talk to me about." You know why are you working for a social enterprise? What was it like? And I just talked about the uh, the the draw of of business doing a good thing at the same as time as doing good business, but that good business had to come first because for all of the of the of the impact you'd like to have with your purpose, you can only have that if your business is successful. Um, so if you focus all your time on the purpose and none on the business, it's, it's the amount of good you can do is going to disappear because you're going out of business um and so we talked about a few of those things and that was that um and then i got a phone call the next day from the same um intermediary and they said oh sharon really liked me and you can meet her again on friday um and this was the week of lockdown so boris was about to go on telly on the friday and tell us all that we weren't allowed out anymore um and so i thought hang on a second you want me to go back into london on Friday when most of London is closing down um and so I, I did think about it a little bit and then I got a prompt from a friend of mine that said are you crazy she wants to talk to you again go and talk to her so I was like oh yeah fair enough probably so I did I went back and on the Friday I went into London it was I can't remember the date exactly but like I said it was the Friday of lockdown that, that Boris went on TV that evening and and declared a lockdown and uh I went into London it was like a ghost town um Sharon had had a uh, a private members club in Soho open just for her. So that's when I started to think it was something out of the Matrix or something because it was only her sat in the middle of this cafe, <laughs> uh, and it was a bit it was a bit odd. And the man, a nice man, greeted me at the door and said, "Oh yes, you're meeting Sharon, aren't you?" There was no one else there, so um, a little bit intimidating. But again, Sharon was just lovely, and we talked a lot. Um, and about halfway through that conversation, she started sort of explaining that she might. Um, reintroduce or, or change the structure to reintroduce um uh, an executive director or md of waitrose and would i be interested in 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 that in doing that job and so and so i sort of said well i've been really clear i do not want to get back into food retail but here's the chairman of wait the chairman of the partnership saying Did, would i be interested in the waitrose job and waitrose was one of the very few companies that i would probably have 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 would have been different and interesting enough to to convince me to go back and have a go at it. And so I sort of said yes. Um and she said, Great, well we'll send you some paperwork on Monday and and, you know, I need to get you to meet some of the uh the non execs and some of the other execs around the table. Um, but broadly, let let's see if we can work something out. And apart from some Zoom meetings with some non-execs and some some of the other people in the business, which took place over the course of the next two weeks. That was the that was the entire extent of my interview process. You know, a cup of tea and then a cup of coffee with Sharon. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to tell you a story about a really grueling set of interviews with lots of different people and psychometric tests and some sort of test of my uh, you know my stamina or something. It really wasn't. Sharon is much more personable and much more. Um, she trusts her instincts and her judgment and so in the end oddly enough it was one of the lightest processes i've ever been through to get a job 
that's I mean that's kind of fascinating and blowing my mind that even at a level that big with that many employees with billion billion turnover that it's a it's a cup of tea in in London and and I, and I think for our listeners um you know hiring is is the most important thing I think if you get one dodgy hire it can eviscerate the culture people yeah. leave people come and go so it's, it's the most important thing um but I also think sometimes they they can kind of overcomplicate it and so sometimes just going to meet people for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea what one one guest on um on here always said you used to take someone for a um for for a cup of coffee and see how they treat the waiter because almost yeah. like that's a really good indication of how how that how they act and so I, I think that's brilliant um i would love to know how how have, how's james had to change um moving from Sainsbury's to, to, to a sort of different role in Waitrose, like what, what are some of the weaknesses you've had to work on as you've crossed from, from sort of, yeah, Sainsbury's to, to Waitrose? Well, I mean, it's interesting. If just practically speaking, 80, let's say at least 80% of what, how, what good supermarket uh, operating, what good, practice what you know what good strategy looks like is pretty similar between all supermarkets there's you know there's a core set of things that you have to get right every time uh and there's a lot of infrastructure and people and stuff that goes behind that but it's 80 percent is is a is a cut and paste broadly so a lot of what i've learned and good people i'd learned from in Sainsbury's i could take over and uh and begin to try and work out what what the path for waitrose could look like and then the twenty percent is is the bit that you you need to spend a bit more time on because it's the thing that makes the business and the culture different. How do you adapt to that? How do you make the most of it? And strategically, what's the most important thing for Waitrose versus a, a Sainsbury's or a you know anyone else, an Aldi or anyone else? Um, so that so on the one hand, uh, there was a huge amount that I'd learned that I could almost immediately start thinking about and doing in the new job. Um, but then the context of when I joined and the situation I joined in was um, was pretty unique. So obviously I joined about a month after COVID started. So all of the, you know, there were queues outside all the shops. Online was going through the roof and Waitrose didn't really have an online business. Um, but I also joined on Zoom. So I didn't get to meet anyone who I was working with before I joined. Uh, I, the offices were closed, so I, I couldn't have gone to the office to meet anyone. Um, and you know, it was a business that had gone from uh, being very reasonably old-fashioned about presenteeism and being in the office to having to immediately adapt to this online flexible approach. And so I arrived, I didn't arrive in a room, I didn't arrive on a lectern, I couldn't go around saying hello to everyone and sort of building trust and a bit of rapport. Everything was on Zoom. Um, so it was a really unusual way to walk into a job in a very, very unusual customer market context. And the partnership is a really different business. So the context I walked into was uh, was exceptional. Um, and, and so I was really, um, it was really difficult to begin to build momentum and trust and, connect, and the kind of connections you need to get hold of a business and, and begin to shape and and move in the direction you're moving in. And not least because the dominant theme, 80% of the dominant theme was COVID. 
and keeping the shops open and whether you had enough partners and what was the law and would there be enough stock coming in. So really, really practical everyday things. There was almost no headroom in the business at all for what comes next. Um, and it took, you know, took two or three or four months before we could create that headroom. And I took, and, and I needed two or three or four months to begin to get to know everyone and for them to get to know me. So the context walking in was really different, um, and difficult. And it kind of shaped that first three to six months. Um, but like I say, 80% of running of any supermarket, of how any supermarket runs is pretty similar. So, you know, you've got to have the right shops in the right places. You need enough presence in the right channels. Operationally, you need your supply chain logistics, your supply relationships to be good, your commercial setup. You know, your retail practice and process needs to be productive and quick and all these things are joined up. So, and all of that is consistent across almost every supermarket. They all do it. There aren't that many differences between what good looks like. Um, Depending on the model you're using, there aren't that many differences. So to an extent, all the experience I had, I could immediately start uh, working on, but the context was exceptionally different. So it was, uh, let, let's say it was a really interesting first year, shall we? Mm. And it's, it's all, I think it's always that 20% where people need to focus because that's what gives you that edge um, in, in everything, not just in, in as, a, as a supermarket. So, so if we go into that 20%, like what, took you by surprise by the way waitress operates like what not necessarily shocked you but like, okay right this is why waitress is a waitress versus sainsbury's is sainsbury's well there was i mean there's some things that everyone can see and feel and you i mean you talked about going to the office and the the kind of camaraderie and the sense of being a partner and the, pe- the extent to which people are invested in that idea that the business is different and it operates differently that is a that is a competitive advantage if you do it if it's um uh if it's enabled and people are allowed to sort of given the freedom and autonomy to act on it that's that's a competitive advantage that is different but the thing i mean you know it, some of it is obvious so waitress is positioned as a premium experience grocery retailer so if you're charging a premium the experience has to be has to match um so you know the most commonly uh, well, one of the most common phrases we get back on net promoter score is expensive but worth it. Um, and we have to concentrate on the worth it um, because there there are a significant number of people out there who are prepared to pay for um, higher quality, sustainably sourced, ethically sourced, and uh, experientially presented food. Food is important to a lot of people, um, and how it's made is important to a lot of people, and it might become more important to a lot of people, and so. Waitrose is one of very few supermarkets or, or grocery retailers left at scale who are who can who can who are committed to sort of delivering that proposition. Um, and so, it, in a way, it's one of the reasons. Actually, uh, I sort of said before, there there are a few reasons why Waitrose was one of the few businesses I would have gone back into food retail for. And one of them is that it's really clear what its brand stands for. It's not in a, in a in a sort of a mirror image. Not that's a bit harsh, but in a in a sort of a the other end of the spectrum to an Aldi and Lidl. Aldi and Lidl know exactly what they're doing and they execute it ruthlessly because they know what they stand for and customers know what they stand for. And on on the other end, you know, Waitrose M&S, similar-ish. It's not, you know you're not going in to get the cheapest food. You know, what you're doing is you're going in to get the very best food Um, and you want, you expect a good experience. 
And so that clarity of mission is very helpful and it is broadly how you shape that extra 20%. Is what is it that we will deliver to our customers, current and future, that will make them love this business and keep coming back and being prepared to pay for the premium food that we offer. That's so interesting. So how do you guys kind of compete with M&S? Is there, with the brands, obviously you've got the brands in, like what's, how do yep. you do that? Um, well, all, I mean, it's, it's all sorts of ways. So firstly, I think M&S do a brilliant job at the moment, right? They're on a, they're on a five or six year path. They started back way before the pandemic. They set out some really clear priorities. They've invested in their shops. Um, and I think they're doing a great job. Um, but bro- broadly, their their challenges that they are for, for most people, they're not a full trolley shop. They are a, a sort of a basket, food on the move, premium, special occasion kind of um, uh, grocer. And that's what they're trying to change with the Ricardo deal, with the bigger shops and everything else. It makes perfect sense. Waitrose is a premium full trolley shop, so we offer the you know the full breadth of everything that you'd want to buy or you can buy in a Sainsbury's or Tesco's but with premium experience and premium food. So if 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 we were just competing with M&S, you'd concentrate on the things that that create that difference. And for us, that is service. So our our partners in branch are, you know, we we tend to get regularly get high very the highest service scores in the business because the partners are invested in the principal. Um there are enough of them to provide good service. We concentrate on the points of service around a, a visit to one of our shops and we have i mean a really good example is we're apart from morrison's we're probably the only we're one of the only supermarkets left who are investing in and invested in having counters so fresh serve over counters so sainsbury's closed theirs a few years ago uh, morrison's still have market street which is great um but you know that's a point of difference that m&s just don't have in their branches normally and so you concentrate on the on the points of interruption that you do have that they don't. Um, and of course, there are other there are other things that we can do that they can't. Like we have our own, we now have our own online service. So it's a it's a waitress partner that comes to deliver your groceries at the doorstep and can have a good conversation and talk to you about, you know, hopefully provide great service at the doorstep. And M and S's goes obviously to Ricardo, which is also a a great uh, technology business, and so they do. They, they do there is advantages to that um so we just if you're competing with just one person which you never are just one competitor you never are if you were you concentrate on the points of difference um and you make sure you deliver them relentlessly and brilliantly yeah i mean it's i com- completely agree and i think what's really interesting is is how this is this angle of service because see for our listeners, James is currently at, at the you're at the Eve, is it Evesham store where we're recording I am. this. Yes, so you're like const, constantly not not I don't mean like checking, but being on the ground to make sure everything's up and running and checking that service is it's kind of it's something that you can't service is quite hard. I know you've got MPS scores, but it's, often it's quite hard to put in an Excel spreadsheet, which is quite interesting. Yeah. But it's something that has to be felt, and it's very it's more qualitative. Um, no, I, I I love that. Um, so where I want to go now is I, I believe there's this kind of tension between challenger brands 
and the the cost of living crisis and yep. and waitrose have always been the kind of they they've flown the flag they've been the the, the bastion of challenger brands like you you kind of you, you know you're the first to take on a lot of brands and really kind of get them going and and believe in them and 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 nurture them so that's on that's on the one hand and there's also on that side it, there's there's an inherent need as you said for for sustainable brands um in better packaging uh, better um better produced b corp etc um and these are because of that they're often more expensive so you've got so you've got that on the on the say the left and on the right hand sides let's not like you know cover our ears and eyes there's a cost of living crisis whereby as a retailer you're going to have to rationalize range, ranges maybe not as often in in with the waitrose shopper but you know for for as you said about that full basket spend or full trolley spend is a lot of the time you know um shoppers may be trading down from like a premium challenger brand to an own brand so there's there's an in, in inherent tension there and i'd love to kind of get your your two cents on it really so so um, despite everything that's going on will waitrose still champion challenger brands uh yes we will um i i mean this thing's going cycles a little bit i think we've been a little bit behind the curve i think historically waitrose has been um really strong on challenger brands i met the um the guys from fever tree if you talk to charlie biggums you know going back through history i think waitrose used to have still has but certainly in past had buyers who were real category experts and had a bit more autonomy to take a risk and go looking for those you know new breakthrough products so as i said charlie biggums fever tree innocent people like that um and i think that is probably because a you had buyers with loads of tenure who were who were product experts and could have spot the trends without any help you know they were out out and about looking for those trends and they kind of grabbed them and also of course like you say most challenger brands are uh, certainly start as premium products for all sorts of obvious and and understandable reasons um and if you're if you're trying to launch a premium product if you're then Waitrose is a good place to start because we have we tend our customers tend to be a little bit better off, a little bit more food inclined, a little bit more inclined to spend more on food. So um it it's a natural marriage. I get that. I think we've I don't think we've probably been at the forefront of that for maybe seven or eight years. There's all sorts of reasons. Um we don't need to go into them now. But strategically, I mean my my obviously my history is at Sainsbury's was a bit of future brands and not and sort of trying to drive the uh, strategic value of smaller challenger brands, premium brands, incremental product, etc. And I think there's a you know it worked at Sainsbury's and there's all sorts of reasons why it works. It will work and it should work at Waitrose. So I think I don't think we've been on the ball as much as we should have been in the last seven or eight years. Like I said, lots of reasons, but definitely built into the strategy from now on and moving forwards and we'll you know we're in the process of trying to resource around that so we can we can set up a structure that that makes it as easy as possible for the buying teams here and the and sort of challenge brands to connect and test and learn and uh and see what works and what doesn't work but you're right um all supermarkets are under immense pressure on cost and margins and the breadth of your range 
and the effectiveness of your commercial strategy as in on the fixture, the structure of your merchandising, the flow of trade between the tiers in different categories is one of the biggest drivers of um, commercial advantage. So there's no question that the breadth of range will come under pressure and rate of sale will come under pressure depending on how you judge commercial success. And so I think there is a default, there will be a default move to put a bit more pressure on what might be slower rate of sale but higher ticket um, items, uh, you know, generally across retail. Not, not everyone maybe, but I think that you, you should expect that pressure. Probably, some of your listeners are probably already feeling it. Um, so you have to prepare for that and you have to have good arguments why keeping your product on the shelf is a is a is a better idea than swapping out for more varieties of Heinz soup or something that there are already quite a lot on the shelf. And the I mean it's a uh it's a it's a, it was always a relatively uh simple argument for me, which was is your product your product may be slightly more expensive and it might have a slightly slower rate of sale, but is that sale incremental? So if someone if someone buys one of your products instead of a can of Heinz soup, um, if you have a nice premium soup brand potentially, um, is that sale incremental to the category? Because another another can of Heinz is just going to be another can of Heinz, but growing the overall size of the category, the value of the category is more important. Um, and yes, it may have a lower rate of sale, but it may also be a higher cash profit because you're off of a, a higher um, starting retail point. And in the blend of the category... It's in no one's medium long term interest to have a category where there is no trade up option. You've got to you've got to give customers the option. They may not be choosing it as much as they used to for a few years. But if you don't have that structure, uh, then the commercial direction of that category is only going to go one way, which is lower and lower and lower. And it's harder in the medium long run, it's always harder if you don't have good trade up options, you haven't got newness on the fixture to keep customers engaged and to keep the you know, keep growing that category. So Buyers will come under short-term pressure. Good challenger brands should be using the data they've got and talking about uh, the, I guess, the structure of the category and making sure you've got good trade-up options, making sure you're talking about incremental sales, not just absolute sales. <sighs> yeah, I mean, there's so much in that, James. I, I, I think one of my first questions is I, I've, I've seen it happen just lots and lots of times um, where, where brands will go into, go into a retailer and I think it's because of this, this newness um, and keeping the stores fresh and the customers excited. But then often because of just, just a lack of experience and, you know, they may not have the big budgets to, to do gondolens, to do all these expensive activations and eventually they, they get kicked out. And I think, one of the painful things is for a lot of founders, it's their, it's their livelihood. It's, it's, it's a lot on the line. It's way, a lot on the, yeah. a lot more on the line, I should say. Um, what would you say are the three principles or basics that our listeners need to get down to make sure that once they're in, they're they're going to stay in? <laughs> well. Um, yeah, I mean that's the golden question, isn't it? I mean, the f oh, I'll, let me let me think. So I, I think the first thing first is always the thing that sells a product is the product, right? So 
for all the money you might or might not invest in point of sale, in marketing, in everything else, you're, you're, in my opinion, this is a, this is a huge uh, simplification. In my opinion, as a founder, the most important things are relatively simple, right? How good is the product? When you, you could spend a lot of money getting someone to try a product, if it's no good, if it doesn't taste good, almost no one's coming back to buy it the next time, right? So all of the talk about repeat rate and acquiring new customers is all great and it's all good, it's all good um, practice. It's ne- none of it happens, none of it works if the product's no good. So always, first things first, how much time are you making sure that the product you've got tastes great, customers love it, and it's 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 doing the job it needs to. So it's I know it sounds simplistic, but first things first, get the product right. Secondly, and it's the only thing, so there's two things. Secondly, get the branding right. Right? It, don't you may have a million reasons why customers should buy your products. It could be beautifully sourced. It could be made artisanally. It could be, you know, keto or 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 gluten-free or it could be you know like tony's it could be um slave free or something it could have a really serious purpose that you believe wholeheartedly in but if you look at tony's chocolate only brilliant product for a start right so why do people buy it again and again Uh, this might be um oversimplifying and uh the guys (laughs) the guys there might kill me for saying it i i think it's because the product tastes amazing right so People go back and buy it because they love the product. And the branding is as in-your-face bright as it possibly could be. So the two things that you have to, you know, you'd always focus your time and effort on, get the product right, get the branding really clear and bold, and don't overcomplicate those two things. You know, you can, um, uh, and I, I think if you're, if you're relentless about that and not, Get, and don't get distracted by a lot. There's going to be a million things that want to distract you. If you get those two things right, broadly, broadly, you've got a much, much, much better chance of staying on the shelf. Um, if you get them wrong, you've got almost no chance of getting on the shelf and then likely you won't stay on the shelf because there just won't be enough repeat or rate of sale or pickup or anything else that comes with it. Um, so, I mean... I know it sounds simplistic. Get the product right all the time. Get the product as right as you possibly can and make sure it's it's the customers who are buying it are buying it because they love it. Not because it's cheap, not because they present a voucher. They're buying it because they love it. And that's that in the end is gonna be the thing that keeps it and gets gets it on shelves and keeps it on shelves. And the only I mean the only other thing I no, would I- say is it's really tempting because it's your baby. And because it's a really unusual world, grocery retailing, that getting on the shelf is very exciting. You know, you go on LinkedIn and there's lots of people with, you know, doing an excited star jump outside a shop saying, excited to see my product in the branch. And that's brilliant because it's about the passion and the and the joy that comes with seeing your project go somewhere. It's really easy to get drawn into the complex world of it and, and to be... Uh, uh, you know, a supermarket will usually say, can you invest in more promotions? Can you invest in a barker? Can you invest in our social media? Can you invest, you know, there are a million things, a million different ways of wasting your money when you're working with a supermarket. You've got to be 
quite focused about things you think are will get you a return on investment. You haven't got much money to invest. You know, Heinz, Pepsi, everyone else, they can afford to lose money here and there, but they are ruthless about return on investment. If they're going to spend some money, they want to see they're getting a benefit for it. And so tempting though it is, and you might there might be a little bit of, I have to do as I'm told, or I can't be seen to be argumentative or anything like that, you've got to be... You know, you've got to be the business person in that room, not the not the not the founder. And the business the person who owns that business is interested in what return am I getting on my investment. So be very, very careful and try and be as strong as you can about only investing in and supporting the products in the way that you feel confident it's going to get a return on investment, not because the buyer asks you to pay for a barker or something else. Uh, it's difficult, but that that would be that's that's the best advice in terms of relationship management I could ever give anyone. I mean, I love that. It's like take the founder's hat off and have the business hat on, because I think you're right. The found the the passion can kind of some often get pulled in, and it's it, it becomes yes. It, it, on the, on the one side, it could be excitement, which is brilliant, but then actually can turn into hazy fog simultaneously. Um, what I do, what I do have to ask you, and and I completely agree. I think the, the getting the product right and getting the branding right is is all these things. That's the foundations. Everything else goes on top, uh, yep. ultimately. But I, I've seen it firsthand. I've got a mate Asher called um, who's got a brand called Rogue. Well, it doesn't. He's had to yeah. actually close the business down. Um, who got into a couple of Sainsbury stores. They, they had a great product. They had like espresso martini jams. Um, and they had like a, uh, like which was, that was hundred percent incremental, like very weird and wonderful flavors. Um, yeah. and, and they did have, they had pretty good branding as well. So, so in my eyes, they've got the product and the branding down and, but they, they haven't made it. Is there other than those like foundational things of, of getting the product and the marketing down, is there anything else? And I mean, this could be something like just knowing your supply chain, um, like how to how often to check in with a buyer because you know it's, it sounds like not not crazy but I you know when uh, when Manny Life first went into M and S we didn't even have like a plan so sometimes brands go in without a plan it sounds crazy but like just some of those things I'd love to get your thoughts on that yeah I mean again you so I mean you mentioned one of the most important things let's let's assume you've got a great product and a great brand right tick tick. What you've done there is you, there's no guarantee that that means it's always going to work, right? Um, there's a million <clears throat> different things going to get in your way after that. But if you've got those two things, you've got a fighting chance, right? Um, I, you mentioned the one thing, the one thing to never drop the ball on, which is supply. So the worst thing in the world would be, you know, it's hard enough to get into a supermarket for a lot of the time. You've battled your way through the buyer, through all the admin forms. You've signed 700-page terms and conditions. Um, you're really excited. You're about to go into 50, 100 shops, whatever it is. Uh, and they press the button on the order, and all the order arrives perfectly. All ends up on the shelf, starts selling, and then you go in a week later and there's nothing on the shelf because the forecast system hasn't pulled it through. You guys haven't been able to check about rate of sale or deliveries. Um most of the time, these orders will fall well below any of the thresholds or the, the sort of the alerting systems in the stock systems in a supermarket. So 
there's every chance they're not keeping a very close eye on it. So if if people are buying your product, the worst thing in the world in the after you've gone through all those hurdles is not putting it on the shelf for them, not giving it not getting it to the retailer so they can sell more of it. Um and I've been in a number of rooms over the last ten years where a brand has come in to try and explain that the rate of sale that the supermarket think is is a, a product is producing is misleading because they weren't they weren't in half the shops there weren't any products for half the time. So in some shops it was selling brilliantly because there was always product. In some it wasn't selling anything at all. And the supermarket, you know, because they're busy, because there's not much else, you know, there's all sorts of other things going on. They're just going to press a button and look at the average rate of sale. You know, if if you're very lucky, you'll get a buyer that goes, "Oh, that's interesting." Half the shop sold ten per week, ten units per week, and half sold none. That doesn't make any sense. What's going on there? They're not going to do all that work for you, most likely. So you've got to supply the product, and then you've you've got to make sure it's it's arriving in those shops for at least the first two or three months until the stock systems, the branch systems, catch up, and you're into the kind of into the mainstream of the flow. Um, because I've seen I've seen brands. Um, you know, land in shops, sell out, and be out of stock for two months because no one was the order system wasn't all reordering, and the brand themselves weren't 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 aware that that was going to be a problem. You assume the supermarkets, you send it in, they're going to reorder it when they need it, and actually, it's not always as smooth as that. So you do like consider those first couple of months, two or three months, as kind of hyper care. If you can get into as many of those shops, check this on the shelf. Go and speak to the branch manager or someone there and say, do you know why this isn't, have you got any of this out the back? Um, and just um, and just be, just own the implementation phase there because this, trust me, it doesn't matter if, it doesn't matter how good you think the product is, you are 0, 0.1% of 0.1% of 0.1% of what's going on in that supermarket at any one time. And the system is often not going to do your job for his job properly for those first few months. So hyper care it in, um, and make sure that the rate of sale you're getting is actually representative of of what happens when it's on the shelf, not when it's out of stock. I it's I, it's kind of and the availability. I've almost talked about everything on this podcast, and the way I, the analogy <laughs> that's come come to my mind is is almost football, right? So you've I've talked about growing the rate of sale, the marketing, the branding, the activations, the star jumps outside of the store. That's ultimately that's your midfield and that's your, that's your strikers going out to get the goals. But availability is 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 your goalkeeper. Like if you don't have availability, you, you, you really it's an own goal. You're shooting yourself in the foot. And I, and I think it's something I yeah I haven't you know I've talked about all the not the bells and whistles but the fun bits the the, the you know the getting the goal in the net and how are we going to attack. But without the availability, and I've seen it firsthand when you're not on on on. on shelf and the rate of sales plummeting and i think one of the biggest things for the brands exist in a brand bubble where you think everything revolves around whatever brand it is whereas actually and i know and i know i learned this the hard way but the the retailer's got a gazillion brands a a bazillion things just just a bazillion it's not even a word but um loads of things to to, to, uh, um to, to manage that you are that 0.0.001% of their priorities. So I think that's, that's fascinating. And, and in terms of, so, so, so you'd say in terms of the actionable things, so you'd say doing the store visits and, you know, checking the first time. I think one of the things we always used to do was 
the relationship with the supply chain is just as important as the relationship with the buyer. So Definitely. build that. Um, I mean, with with at, when we were working with co-op, was we'd actually go up and meet, go out with the supply chain teams for beers and stuff because that's super important. Is there anything else they can like say say a, say a, a brand goes into store and there isn't availability? Like, how do they deliver that message through the kind of the the rigmarole yeah. of, of waitros? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I uh, so, so the in a way, the last thing you want to be is that 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 business that brand that phones up on day two that says i've just been in the shop and there's no stock what are you going to do about it because the buyer is probably going to go unless you've got a really (laughs) understanding buyer they're probably going to go do you know what i'll call you back in two weeks time or something else Mm -hmm. because you know an an amount of effort's gone into getting you in it's kind of like they've they've fed you into the system the system has to take care of it they're not gonna unless you've got really really understanding buyer they're not gonna go and dig up the the, the road for you and try and get that product um flowing through properly i would um if i was if, if i was bringing this a product in or a brand in i would once you've agreed it's going in i would probably two or three months couple of months before launch date i'd be i'd be if you can get in with the buyer or, or send them an email or something that says look we're really excited we're super excited we're, we're going to do what we need to do to make the success in your business and give you what you need as a buyer, um, connect as you say, connect with the supply chain guys because that's quite important. Who's ask the buyer? Who's your supply chain forecaster? Who's going to be ordering the products and stuff like that? Uh, build connect with those guys, and I would say to the buyer, look, we're going to invest. Um, well, if you're going to spend money in those first couple of months, there's, there's there might be a promotion, there might be something else. That's all fine. Keep some of that money for to get some help operationally so it's either supply chain help or it is branch execution help so who can you pay some people if you have to can you pay some people to go and do the checking for you can you pay some people to make sure your operations are set up smoothly and the ordering process is going to work and there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to get it wrong so so invest a little bit of time if necessary or money if you can on you know stock and availability assurance in those first couple of months um, and there's there's people out there that will help you with it, like Young Foodies or other people like that. Um, and then mm. go to your buyer and say, "It's really important for me that we've you you've taken a, a pun on us. It's really important for me that we show up properly for you in your stores. So we're going to invest some time and effort in making sure the products arriving in the shops and it's on the shelves and it looks right for you. Um, and so this is what we're going to do. We're going to invest." This, this is what we're going to do is try and assure you on that. And then they know that you're going to be behind the scenes, checking the numbers, having someone help you check the numbers. And so if you come back two, four weeks later and say, you know, here's what we found. We've got a little bit of an availability issue. Here's what we've done about it. We've had this conversation with the supply chain guys uh, and we're still working on it. You know, they know that you're after it. They know you're not telling them to fix it. And if the if the subject of availability or stock availability needs to come up, it's on your terms. So just for those first two or three months, let them know you're going to be investing time, effort, if you can, resource to make sure it's on the shelf all at the right time. And it, need, it only needs to be the first three months because after that time, the supermarket's own system has picked it up properly and it's kind of revolving through. You've got a rate of sale and it's and it's working its way through and it's in the right place in most of the shops by then. And it's flowing in the way it's meant to. 
I mean, what you what you've kind of just said to me there, James, and it's it's striking a chord. Is is it's almost Waitrose have great service with the end customer, but you're almost saying brands should have great service with with the buyer in terms of like as you say don't don't get on the phone to them day two being like mate where's my stock or like where, where's yep. it on stock and then yeah and then but then also you, you know seeing it as you're both on the same side of the table to grow this thing together and i think that's there's just yeah. so much in that for our listeners um so we've got a hungry whatsapp group and told listeners that you you were coming on and what it's kind of the million dollar question uh and lots of our listeners want to know how to, how to get into into waitrose and i think from your side of the table like you you're under pressure um cost of living crisis christmas is now i think brands as i said to you earlier get so in their own head that they just think with you know god's given son essentially so like every buyer will respond to my email like i'm just gonna be very frank um it's imagine imagine you had a brand i don't know like i say it was Bailey's biscuits or, or something like that. Sounds good. What are the yeah. steps you? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, Bailey's biscuits, um, maybe made with Bailey's. Um, but say you were tr- trying to get into get into Waitrose tomorrow, what would what would you do? Uh, is the first question, and then and then the other thing is, and I know there's there's no there's no like it's a variable answer but with with the deck what do you what do you actually want to see like if you had four slides what would you actually put on that deck yeah so i mean the first question were how to connect with waitrose like i said i think we i don't think we've made that as easy as it needs to be um we're in the process of changing that so um in the nearish future we should be able to uh uh provide a gate like a gateway or a sort of a team that will that will take all of those calls and and have good upfront conversations. So at the moment, in the absence of that, I should be in the next three to four months latest, hopefully. In the absence of that, um, you know, you're looking for someone, you're looking for a phone number or an email who, because I mean, it's, as I say, it's a relatively friendly business, right? So if you do connect with someone, preferably in the commercial teams and you know, a lot of those emails or connects are out there somewhere on the internet, or you can ask someone else who works with them for a connection. You know, find find someone to connect with and say, you know, I'm. This is us. We're looking to have a, a quick conversation with the relevant buyer. Would you mind telling me who that is, or or finding a name? So you you've kind of got to work your way towards it, which I don't think is quite right. But at the moment, that's probably the only way it's going to work. Um, as I say sooner rather than later we'll set that up so it's a lot easier for brands to come and talk to us but at the moment that's probably the, the obvious way and you know what <laughs> it is the million dollar question what do you put on those first four slides or you know do you come in dressed as a as a giant uh, jar of peanut butter and sit on the steps of the head office and 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 try and um mm-hmm. trip people over on the way in um i wouldn't if i, I wouldn't by the way but that's some people do that um the, look, the most important thing is is what the brand is about. Is it about what? Why should your customers? Why would? Why should Waitrose customers buy this brand? Why will they buy this brand? Is it? Is it an upgrade in an existing category? So you know, Manny Life's a great example. Some Pat been around for hundreds of years, Whole Earth, etc. But Manny Life's a great tasting product. Big fan of Pippin Nut as well. Every you know, there's other brands are available. Um, so it's an upgrade on an existing product. And that's pretty easy for most customers to understand because they already buy a lot of the core one. So think, you know, 
I think Fever Tree, uh, think Innocent. Some of those, those those aren't creating new food food categories. They're not products that people have never heard of. They're just better um, product, better versions of a product people buy a lot of already. So understand what the what you're selling and who's going to buy it, and then it, and then you know explain why you're. Get you know be as be as clear as possible about the branding because it's the the for the first couple of years probably the packaging and the branding is going to have to sell do most of the job of the selling so be really be you know be bold about what the product looks like how it's going to how it's going to sound up for the customers on the shelf and if you've got why that if you've got the why and you've got the the product that looks professional looks looks like it's you know it's believable that we could sell some of this if you can. The next most important thing, if you've not got any data, if you've not got any data, if this is the first time you're talking to a supermarket, then you're kind of, you, you, you can't convince them on a rate of sale from somewhere else. You can't say these are the margins or anything else you can do. If, if this really is the first conversation we've had with a supermarket, then the most important thing then is the product. So how can you get the product into the hands of the person who's going to try and taste it? It's not ideal because that's a bit difficult, especially now everyone's, sort of spread across the um uh the world of flexible working a little bit but if you genuinely believe in the product if you've got strong brand if you've got a reason why customers are going to buy it um to a great extent the most important thing for a buyer is like i kind of get that i kind of get why they might buy a premium jam or a premium something else i kind of understand where this is coming from the brand the brand looks nice and bright and clear um what does it taste like you know is this any good at all is this the it's the obvious missing question? Um, so I I would keep it I would keep it simple and if pos- if at all possible, the obvious thing if this is your first rodeo, the obvious thing is the product's the thing that's going to sell it. If it's not, if you've got some other people you sell with, then the most important thing is re- is proving that it's working somewhere else. So showing a growing rate of sales, showing a, a you know such su- use the data you've got because. There's nothing that convinces a buyer more than FOMO. Someone else is already working somewhere else. Uh, I don't have to worry that I'm going to spend all the time putting this in and I'm going to take care again three months later because you can build a bit more confidence by saying, look, it's already in um, Ocado. It's already in somewhere else and we sell a lot of it. Um, so if you've got that, use it. If you haven't, it's going to have to be the product itself. That's fascinating. And then, you know what you were saying earlier about this, this 80% uh, of like when you've moved from Sainsbury's across, 80% of kind of um, grocery is the same. And there's that 20% edge where it goes to different retailers. And I think from the brand side of things, we are very good at that 80% of like, this is the brand, this is what we shout out about. Um, it, you know, most of the packaging is really garish as a, as a good, good at PR. That stuff's good. The The, the 20%, which is which is almost the bit that kind of seals the deal really, which is the, these case studies, which are fantastic. Do, would you want to see like a, a rough calculation of like, okay, if we're in X number of stores, this is predicted rate of sale. Like this is the P and L for what we could make for you in this year. This is how we'd support the marketing plan. That, do you think it needs that? Or is that more of a discussion once you have the meeting? And I, again, I appreciate there's no, it's, this, it's an art, not science, but. Yeah. You're kind of more appealing to, the heart than the head in those first interactions so i wouldn't go into here's an all singing all dancing business plan and i'd I'd even be quite simple about that 
afterwards as well. I'd, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and over professionalize or over complicate the conversation. And those first interactions are, is there, is there a market for this product? Does this buyer believe, do they like it? Do they believe in it? Do they, even if they don't like it, do they think the customers will like it more importantly? So I would try and keep it as, you know, as simple as possible to begin with, but you, you know, have the commercials in your back pocket and know what you're, you know, know what you want to sell it for, know what you might be able to offer on promotion a little bit, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in with all of that because it's, that's, that's the kind of detail you get into once you're motoring. It's not, and before you get on the shelf, obviously the buyers want to know pricing and everything else that comes with it and how might you support. And that's great, but you've got to, first of all, you've got to sell it. You've got to go over that first line. And that is a, that's a, a heart rather than a head conversation to begin with. I love finding principles and it's heart versus head is brilliant. I love that. Um, where I want to go now, and I'm obsessed with this kind of this, um, this hardware versus software um, of, of, of leadership. And I think um, so hard hardware is stuff that is, is kind of principles that you're, you're taught um, through courses, etc. Where software is something that you personally kind of only get through experience. So, um, an analogous example could be like football. Like people can tell you how to put a print, uh, put put a football into the back of a net. But there's a, the the software and the nuances is very like the way Messi kicks a football versus Ronaldo is very very different. Um, cooking is the same thing. The principles right. Look, make a burger. This is how you make a burger. If you were to get Gordon Ramsay versus Ottolenghi versus I don't know, Heston Blumenthal, they'd probably create three very different burgers, right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of our listeners are, are leaders. What would you say the three principles of great leadership are in, in terms of hardware, in terms of something you just you need to have down first? And then second is, is what I'd love to unpack is kind of these nuances you've personally picked up through being in the industry for so long. Yeah, well, I think on your analogy, I'm a much more of a software than a hardware kind of guy. Um, so I'm right. a terrible example of someone who hasn't learned much in classrooms or on courses or uh, things like that. And actually, um, uh, that I'm a I am a, a strong believer in personal development, and I think it's a different. It means different things to different people. So you've got to kind of allow a quite a wide spectrum of what someone's development is and what works for them or what doesn't work. And I'm on the I'm on the I'm on the one end of the spectrum where I think most of what I've learned has come from experience and from other people in the in in just understanding and working, getting to know them rather than particularly from a development course or or something else. But there's horses for courses. Um and I you know I what it's really difficult um to you have to take a real step back and work to to out of the rat race before you can get perspective on what works and what doesn't work but the main the main thing i always rely on is i have uh i don't think in my entire career i've ever got anywhere if if i didn't have the right team around me i know it sounds like an obvious thing to say but I think one of the few things I'm really good at is uh, putting together and enabling uh, high-performing teams, um, which is not as easy as it sounds, 
but I think that kind the the focus on the team rather than the objective, particularly the outcome, the results, the drive, and everything else that comes with it. If I used to say to people who were uh, doing their first uh, sort of management leadership job that if if you are spending more uh, more than half of your time on the people, that's probably you're probably going to get where you need to go. If you're not, it's it probably work. It's you're probably not, um, and that gets harder and harder in the different jobs you do, and it's harder and harder in you know in for you know some of your lists of founders they'll probably you mentioned it yourself at the start, but the uh, you know the number of founders I spoke to and said that the people the the thing that takes up most of the time is the people because there's a lot of recruitment and performance and everything else, but when you get the people right, then the whole thing works. And that is true. That's I think that's very, very true for challenge brands. I think it's true in nearly every work you're going to do. So I my like I say, my focus is the software normally by default. That's just the way I'm wired. And most of my software is focused most of the time on either interesting, exciting, problem solving stuff that gets me out of bed or the people required to solve those problems. Um, and it's, you know, best case scenario, sort of 50, 50 between the two. Yeah, that's, uh, so I'm conscious of your time, James. So just a few, few more things I've kind of just, I've got to scratch my itch of curiosity here. Okay. <laughs> so I hope that's okay. Uh, um, the, so, so what do you believe is kind of the, the, the future of, of retail? Like what, if we were to kind of fast forward to five years time, like what, what do you think it's going to look like? I'm just kind of fascinated how it's in kind of a, a utopian lens, how things are going to look. <laughs> well, this is, this is a, this is a quick fire question on the end. Is it? Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not a quick fire. It's kind of, it kind of, I just kind of have to shove it in there. Apologies. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, um, well, you know what most of the, and this is, uh, this is a pretty corny way of describing it. I do love the old quote though, but it's the, I can't pick, I can't remember who it was. I think it might've been RC Clark, but the future's out there. It's just, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So most of what really good and by stroke future retailing will look like is already out there somewhere. So I suspect there'll be a lot more, there'll be a, there'll be more and more technology involved in retailing and more and more in the operations than the than previously, if you like. So things like and sounds ridiculous, but electronic shelf edge labels, shelf cameras, uh, customers uh, um, passing the the service and the operations um, burden, if you like, to customers through their smartphones, through smart checkouts, things like that. All of those things are already out there somewhere. They're just not fully embedded. They're not fully working. Automated. Um, a little bit more automation through logistics and warehousing, all those sorts of things. Tech is tech is going to creep much more into the background than the foreground of retailing over the next five years. And I think it has a profound effect on lots of things we do. Um and most importantly, probably on the if if you're if you're able to execute that, you can probably continue to run a supermarket without taking more away from the customers. Uh, and and sort of stay financially healthy if you can't do too much of that then a bit like we've seen gradually over the course of the last five or six years to stay 
in the black and healthily in the black as a supermarket, you've seen lots of things start to be taken away from customers on the on to try and balance the books. Um, so I, I think tech in the tech in the background rather than the foreground is going to be quite important. And I, I mean, I, this is a this is a pet subject, but I've said quite a lot recently that I I I do wonder sometimes if maybe that the era of cheap food might have come to an end. And I don't mean that because we're having a, a huge inflationary burst because a lot of that is cyclical, not structural. I mean it more because, you know, the, the percent of the of disposable income that Britons have spent have spent on food has gone down nearly every year for the last fifty years. And as a percent of our disposable income, we spend one of the lowest amounts in the in the developed world, if that's the right phrase, um, on our food. So you go to Italy, you go to France, you go to Japan, you go to lots of other de- sort of older developed um, <coughs> countries, and they spend a lot more on food than we do. And I wonder if, you know, the more we peel back the layers and the real cost of food, the cost of food production in terms of sustainability, biodiversity, um, animal welfare, the more that gets peeled back. You know, as a report by the UN a couple of years ago said, um, the annual market for food globally is about $12 trillion. And the cost, the environmental, social, um, and uh, sort of climate cost of the food system is about $12 trillion, but it's not priced in at the moment. It's, ex- it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the invisible cost, the externalities of the food system. And I think customers, the industry is becoming much more aware of that. Customers are becoming much more aware of that. And I, I do wonder if the era of cheap food, where mass production that was that was taking out that was taking its its benefit from the environment, uh, is is gradually going to have to turn around because I don't think people are going to accept that the food system is part of the problem anymore. It has to become part of the solution. But for that to happen, most likely people are going to have to pay more for their food for it to be long term sustainable. So, in the I wonder if in the future, maybe not in five years, but in the medium longer term future. The input, the, the role of food in people's budgets and their lives, and the importance of it more broadly, at, will have changed shape so that our relationship with food becomes more sustainable. I mean, that's, I had never thought of it like that. To be honest, in terms of the people being happy to spend more on food, like on on a macro level, not just at, at waitress, but it kind of. As you say, the, the the environment is is the systemic issue, and that's going to have to be solved. And, um, I think well, there's there's this book by Nassim Taleb called Anti Fragility, and it's um, or Anti Fragile, and anti the, the actual definition of anti fragility is anti fragility goes beyond robustness. It means that something does not merely withstand a shock, but actually improves because of it. So with with everything with what you've just said there about how kind of technology is going to move into the into the background not the foreground ground the cost of people spending more what do our listeners need to do now what should they be focusing on now to to build anti-fragility and to and to make sure they're coming out not not just like withstanding but coming out swinging because and i ask this because i've got one of my great mates manish he's had to sadly close his business holy moly which is just you know he'd got it into a car yep. got it into retailers yeah three or four are kind of going it's it's happening um and it's sad um so yeah what should what should they be focusing on now to build anti-fragility yeah i mean 
it's a always um, challenge of food brands are fragile creatures until they reach a certain point, and it's really hard to you can be you, know, you can be you can be ranged in a lot of uh, supermarkets. You can be into food service a little bit. You could even be international, and you're still your economics are really challenging. Um, so it is actually a really tough path out beyond that and into more a more sustainable setup. I mean, the, obvi- the ob- it's not rocket science, but the obvious thing to say in terms of anti-fragility is to is to be as clear as you can about the path to profitability, because the you know the the most fragile thing about any challenger brand is its is its cash flow, um, uh, and you can't keep you. There was a there was obviously a period there where you could keep borrowing and keep raising, um, and you, and there are pros and cons of that, but that. If if that's disappeared for a while, then you have to focus back on the basics, which is how do you how do how have you got a business that's resilient on its own two feet as much as you possibly can? And you know, I go back to the the thing we talked about earlier about making sure you're only investing in things that you're really confident about, or you're confident enough that you're going to get a return on. It's really difficult, um, and the economics of of businesses at that level are notoriously challenging. But if I mean it's but. It doesn't take away the the anti fragility at the moment, and for two or three years more, and actually probably longer than that, but for two or three years more is definitely, you know, try and set a business up that that can make a profit as quickly as possible. And if you're not making a profit at the moment, if you, you know, if you're gradually wearing down the cash flow, how do you turn that around? What difficult decisions do you have to make to um, stay afloat until you until you're in a position where you can start reinvesting again? Because yeah, best, yeah, best brand in the world, best product in the world. If you've thrown all the money at the tank and you're, you, you've marketed the life out of it and you've run out, you know, it, it doesn't matter that you should have been the next Coca-Cola because you're not going to be. Um, so it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's brass tacks at the moment, unfortunately. Oh, I love that part, path to profitability. Um, final question, honestly, final question. Uh, so I ask this to all guests who've got kids because I think it's a really interesting lens to to look through. But yeah, I, I'm right in saying you've got three kids? Uh, two uh, that I'm aware of, not unless you know something I don't. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's my, my brain. I haven't had enough coffee this morning, James. Apologies. So so you've got two kids. Um, so what, what advice do you, do you give to them as they embark out on the world? Or when they embark ah. out in the world, I should say. Yeah, no, they haven't quite yet. To enjoy it, you know, just to do the things you love doing. Um, I've only, I, I mean, it's it's harking back to advice I give. The only career advice I normally give people is just to take jobs based on their instincts. So things they think they're going to enjoy, because if you enjoy it, you tend to do a better job and you're doing a better job. So you, you might get other opportunities on the back of that. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I you know, Kids these days are exposed to all sorts of funny, random things that that we've never. I was never exposed to as a kid, so that you know, it's just to make sure they're enjoying it and they're picking things that they enjoy, that they love, uh, and uh, and and broadly just take that risk. You know, like a lot of people listening to this, you know, if you've, if you've got founders on here, that's exactly what they've done. They've they've followed their heart. They've they've taken a big risk. They've put themselves into something quite difficult and risky um and in, and like i said you know better to die on your feet than live on your knees you've got to you've got to you only get one round of this so you might as well enjoy it and do the things you love doing so win or lose if you've chosen those things 
then you, you, you know, you're not going to look back and regret that you never did the things you wanted to do. I haven't quite had all of that conversation with my kids. They're only 12 and nine, but that's the plan. That's such a kind of succinct and, you know, scrumptious way to, to end the conversation with, you know, die on your feet versus, you know, live on your knees. Um, James, that was absolutely epic. Um, so, so grateful. I know this will be profoundly valuable for so many listeners. Um, so thank you so much. All right, no problem at all. Real pleasure to see you. Thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. If you liked that episode, only if you liked it, please do give it five stars, subscribe, tell all your friends, families, foes, next door but one, cat, dog, whatever. Please tell everyone about this podcast. It means the world to me. And I really want to understand what your pain points are as the new wave of, of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Please do hit me up on LinkedIn, search Dan Pope, and hopefully we can together create a more meaningful and powerful podcast for the next wave of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Thank you so much. Thank you.